2 Samuel 2, looking at verses 12 through the end of the, excuse me, 12 through um, 31, 32 sort of, but effectively 31 this evening. Fighting's inevitable end, the name of the sermon. The other day, my family and I went out to eat, and we were at a, a restaurant. It was a Mexican restaurant, and they had the television on. Uh, that's fairly common when we go there. We don't get there all that often, but they've got televisions on that are, that are there in the restaurant. And uh, because it's a Mexican restaurant and it's fairly authentic, usually I have the opportunity to watch a little bit of soccer or something. And that's, that's always a little enjoyable, glancing up from time to time and seeing that. But, but this week, they didn't have soccer on. They actually had um, some mixed martial arts on. And of course, this is uh, heavily geared toward throwing punches, but it adds in elements of you know, punching and kicking and, and um, some wrestling aspects as well. It's kind of fair game in many, in many ways. And this was um, something a little bit unique for my daughters. So we don't own a television, so we don't watch television very often. And we're pretty careful about the movies that they watch. And so here they are, and, and normally they get to see someone kicking around a ball or putting a ball into a hoop or something. And, and here they're watching these men and then women afterwards throwing punches and kicking each other. And this was uh, a, a new concept for them. Naturally, uh, it was a circumstance that was a little less than comfortable for my wife and I, but it, it became a circumstance uh, wherein my wife and I had a great opportunity to explain some important truths to our daughters. These men were fighting, and, and while they weren't necessarily bad men, they were engaged in a profession that does not well reflect the biblical mandate of believers to be peacemakers, does it? It's a sport of violence, and we, as God's people, are people of peace. At the end of this fight, one man had won, one man had lost, but both men were injured. And that's typically how fights go, right? One person may win, and another person may lose, but... Both sides of the conflict typically incur loss or injury when conflict arises. The inevitable end of fighting is pain, injury, and loss. This evening, as we step back into 2 Samuel, we're in 2 Samuel 2, in fact, back here. We were here last week as well. We see a battle between the men of David and the men of Ishbosheth, Saul's son. And from it, we will not only set the stage for the plot of 2 Samuel, as we are still very early in the series, but we'll also consider the inevitable and unfortunate realities of conflicts, that being that conflicts are damaging. Now, our text opens this evening, chapter 2, verse 12, with Abner and his men coming to Gibeon, from Mahanaim. You perhaps recall last week that Ishbosheth was um, crowned king of the nation of Israel, except for Judah, who had followed David. He was crowned king in Mahanaim. And the text tells us Abner, the son of Ner, and the, son, and the servants of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, went out from Mahanaim to Gibeon, and Joab, the son 
of Zeruiah and the servants of David went out and met together by the pool of Gibeon. And they sat down, the one on the one side of the pool and the other on the other side of the pool. So as we consider this circumstance, remember Abner is the captain of Saul's armies. He's also Saul's uncle. And he is directly responsible for Ishbosheth getting on the throne, and he is still in control of the armies of Israel. Here we see particularly that the men that are with him are Benjamites. We'll see that in just a moment. On the other side, we have Joab, and Joab is said to be the son of Zeruiah. Now, this is an interesting thing, and as I was studying it, this interested me a little bit. Why is he called the son of Zeruiah? This is not the first son of Zeruiah we've seen. In fact, this is the second son of Zeruiah that we have seen. We didn't, we, we didn't see the first son in 2 Samuel. If you remember the morning series, we actually met the first son of Zeruiah in 1 Samuel. But the interesting thing about him being a son of Zeruiah and us finding these, these men who are sons of Zeruiah is that Zeruiah is a woman's name, not a man's name. And that's an interesting thing, because typically if a man were going to be associated with somebody, if someone was, was well-known enough, it would typically be a man, right? It would typically be a man and his accomplishments so that, so that the son would be identified by his father or perhaps his grandfather. He would be identified by someone within his lineage. Uh, Jesus is called the son of David, and, and he's the son of David because he's identified as one who has come from David's lineage. And yet these men, these warriors, these great warriors are being identified as the son of this woman. So who is this woman? Well, in 1 Chronicles chapter 2, verse 16, as we walk through some genealogies, we find out that this woman, Zeruiah, is David's sister. Hence the reason why they're identified with her because she's identified with David, and this gives us an understanding of the link between Joab as well as two more men that we'll, we'll see again in a moment, and David. And if Zeruiah is David's sister, that means Joab is David's nephew, that David is Joab's uncle. So that gives us a little bit of a link here as to who Joab is and who his brothers are. So these two military leaders and their men, they meet together, and the text tells us that they meet around the pool of Gibeon, each on one side of the pool. It's Abner that speaks first in verse 14. Scriptures say, Abner said to Joab, let the young men now arise and play before us. And Joab said, let them arise. Now the idea of letting the men play here was, it would appear, and as we would understand, these are big military men. They're not going to get into a sandbox in the middle and, you know, giggle around a sandbox. That, that's not what we mean by playing here. They didn't pull out a pigskin and start throwing it back and forth. These men were going to engage in, in a skirmish, a, gladiator, a gladiatorial match here. These men are going to fight each other. And I just mentioned the other day, not a whole lot has changed in 2,000, 3,000 years, right? This is still what men do um, for entertainment. They fight each other. I don't know what it is. It's just, just the way we are. It's the way we're wired. Let's have some fun. Let's all get around in a circle and let's, let's hit each other in the face. 
All right. So these men are going to get into uh, the, the middle, and they're going to fight each other. Abner suggests it. He says, let's, let's have this thing happen. Joab says, okay, that's fine. It was sport, but it was definitely deadly sport. And, and this was understood here. They're going out there with weapons. They're fighting. This is, this is a deadly thing. So the text tells us in verses 15 and 16, then there arose and went over by number 12 of Benjamin, which pertained to Ishbosheth the son of Saul, and 12 of the servants of David. And they caught everyone his fellow by the head and thrust his sword in his fellow's side. So they fell down together. Wherefore the place was called Helkath Hazurim, which is in Gibeon. So 24 men, 12 from each side, 12 from Benjamin. And this is where we find out that, that the men at least a portion of the men were from Benjamin. All 12 came were from Benjamin. 12 of David's men came. And it says that they got into the circle and they all grabbed each other by the head. They thrust each other through with swords and they all died. All 24 of these men, presumably, they all killed each other and they all died. The place was thus named Helkath Hadzarim, meaning the field of flints. The idea of being flints would be men of strength. So the field of strong men is what this place was called from that point on. And these men are dead. Well, as sometimes happens when men try to one-up one another and showboat and fight each other, things can get out of hand. And what begins is kind of a, a, a fun thing. What begins as a, a show of dominance becomes an all-out brawl. And we see that that's what happened here. This, this uh, skirmish between these 24 men initiated a battle between Saul's or Ishbosheth's men and David's men. So we read in verse 17, there was a very sore battle that day. And Abner was beaten and the men of Israel before the servants of David. Battle ensues between the larger forces. Abner's forces were beaten by Joab. And we, we might expect this, right? Um, it's been perhaps, perhaps five years, perhaps a little bit less, since that huge defeat against the Philistines that we read about at the end of 1 Samuel chapter, or in the end of 1 Samuel, the one that, that killed Saul and his sons. Probably the majority of the valiant fighting men in Israel had been killed at that time, whereas David had seasoned warriors. I mean, these, when we read about David's mighty men, these guys were mighty, mighty men. And so it would not be a surprise that David's men would have no problem taking care of Abner's forces. And that is indeed what happens. And the text goes on to say in verses 18 and 19, there were three sons of Zeruiah there, Joab and Abishai, and Azahel. And Azahel was as light of foot as a wild roe. And Azahel pursued after Abner, and in going, he turned not to the right hand nor to the left hand from following Abner. So the text tells us now, we, it introduces us to the other two, uh, to Joab's brothers, the other two sons of Zeruiah, Abishai and Azahel. Abner is fleeing the battlefield because of his losses, and he doesn't really feel like dying that day. But, but as we consider Joab's two brothers, now I mentioned already one of these brothers, Abishai, we met in 1 Samuel. In fact, we met him in 1 Samuel 26. Do you remember the time, this would have been later on in, in David's flight, 
where Saul and his men were uh, encamped along the road and all of his men surrounded him and the Lord allowed a deep sleep to come upon Saul and his men and David and two men with him snuck into the camp and David was encouraged to kill Saul but he chose not to and instead he took the cruise of water and he took Saul's spear and they went out and then he called to Saul and, and he kind of um, mocked Abner a little bit for not protecting the king. Well, one of the men that was with David that night was Abishai, the son of Zeruiah. And in fact, Abishai was the one that told David, this is your chance, kill him. And David said, no. And then Abishai said, well, then I'll kill him. And David said, don't think that you can lay hand on the Lord's anointed any more than I can lay hand on the Lord's anointed and be guiltless. We will not kill him. And so Abishai was that man. He, he was there on that day. So we've met him before. we never met Azahel before. And probably because Azahel was, was likely the youngest. As a matter of fact, typically in Hebrew writing, if they write brothers, they write them in order of birth. So Joab was likely the eldest, then Abishai, and then Azahel. It's quite possible that Azahel was very fast because he had never put a whole lot of meat on his bones. Uh, he was probably fairly young, seeking to establish himself among David's mighty men. Obviously, Joab is a great warrior. Obviously, Abishai is a great warrior. And now Azahel wants to make his mark. Azahel need, needs some glory to kind of boost him among these mighty men. I'm, I'm sure that there was a culture uh, among these mighty men of, um, of war and thus accomplishment. So Azahel, being a very fast runner, took it upon himself to chase Abner down. After all, what would be greater, right, than, than chasing Abner down and killing him? You couldn't do much better than that as far as putting your name out there, as far as working yourself up in the ranks. He's going to chase Abner down. He's going to take him out. He didn't turn to the left hand. He didn't turn to the right hand. He was focused on Abner, killing Abner, the captain of Ishbosheth's host. So we pick up in verse 22. Uh, excuse me, verse 20. Then Abner looked behind him and said, Art thou Azahel? And he answered, I am. And Abner said to him, Turn thee aside to thy right hand or to thy left, and lay thee hold on one of the young men, and take thee his armor. But Azahel would not turn aside from following him. So they're running, right? They're running. And Abner's like, hey, is that Azahel there? And Azahel, yep, that's me. And he says, look, just, just turn. Go that way, go that way. Look, there's other guys. You're passing them up to get to me. Just go kill one of them. And they're all jogging. Must have been in good shape because that would have made, you know, it makes your side hurt when you try to talk and run at the same time, right? But they're doing okay here. So they're running. As hell isn't interested. He's not interested in the armor of that kid or that guy. He wants Abner. So he does not turn. He would not turn aside. Continuing in 23. Howbeit he refused to turn aside, wherefore Abner with the hinder end of his spear, smote him under the fifth rib. So Abner says, look, I warned you. He turns around. He kills Azahel. Now, Abner's been around the block for a long time. A much better warrior than Azahel. Not even a contest. The spear came out behind him, and he fell down there and died in the same place. And it came to pass that as many as came to the place where Azahel fell down and died, stood still. So Azahel, his mind set on glory, I'm going to get Abner. He wouldn't turn around. Abner says, look, you need to turn aside. I don't want to kill you. He doesn't do it. And so he kills him. Uh, 
I missed 22 in there somehow. Verse 22 says, And Abner said unto, again unto Abihail, I thought, where's the part where he warned him? Uh, I read you verses 20 and 21. Verse 22 says, And Abner said again unto Azahel, Turn thee aside from following me. Wherefore should I smite thee to the ground? How then should I hold up my face to Joab thy brother? Howbeit he refused to turn aside. Wherefore Abner with the hinder end of the, of the spear smote him under the fifth rib. So there's, there's the rest of the story. So he's running. He won't turn aside. He says, look, I'm going to have to kill you if you don't turn aside. Azahel will not do it. So he did what he said he'd do. And he killed him, as he, as he said he would. The text adds that after that day, those who came to that spot where Azahel died would stand still for a brief moment, a moment of silence, if you will, to respect the place where Azahel fell on the battlefield. Verse 24, as an end of this battle, we read this. Joab also and Abishai pursued after Abner, and the sun went down when they were come to the hill of Ammah that lieth before Gaia by the way of the wilderness of Gibeon. So Joab and Abishai are probably pretty angry at this point. They're pursuing Abner now, and they pursue him to a hill. It would seem to be a place where Abner could fortify, where he could regroup, a place where, where he could... Um, take stock of the men that he had and gather enough forces to defend himself. And indeed, he does just that. Verse 25 says, The children of Benjamin gathered themselves together after Abner and became one troop and stood at the top of the hill. So now uh, Abner has his reinforcements. The children of Benjamin are there. They're standing together at the top of the hill. Notice it does say the children of Benjamin. We saw the children of Benjamin go out to skirmish, and now we see the children of Benjamin coming to Abner's aid. It's quite clear that even though all of Israel was under Ishbosheth's control, the, the children of Benjamin had a unique loyalty yet to Abner, which makes sense because he's a Benjamite, and Ishbosheth was a Benjamite as well. They are near Gibeon. It was a part of the inheritance of Benjamin. It makes sense that the Benjamites would be there. So everything's kind of, you know, it, it makes sense that Abner would, would call them and that they'd come together to defend him. Verse 26, Abner cries out to Joab. And the scriptures say, Then Abner called to Joab and said, Shall the sword devour forever? Knowest thou not that it will be bitterness in the latter end? How long shall it be then, ere thou bid the people return from following their brethren? Abner's words here are very wise. He warns Joab that every man that is slain in this battle has consequences. He says two particular things here. The first being that it will be bitterness in the latter end. The second he mentions that they're following their brethren. Effectively what he's saying is this. Look, there's coming a day when we as brethren are not going to be fighting each other. And every man that falls in this civil war is going to be more bitterness. It's going to be more resentment. It's going to be harder to unite with every man that falls through battle. Abner's on the defensive here. We know this. He has no capacity to just walk away, so he's asking Joab to walk away. He's requesting that Joab turn around and go home. Now, Joab's response is very good as well. We read this in 27 and 28. Joab said, As God liveth, unless thou hast spoken, surely then in the morning the people had gone up, everyone from following his brother. So Joab blew a trumpet, 
And all the people stood still and pursued after Israel no more, neither fought they any more. Joab's not going to let Abner imply that this is all Joab's fault. Sure, Joab is there. Abner is on the defensive now. But remember how this started. And that's what Joab is saying here. He said, if you had not spoken, if you had not had your grand idea that these men fight to begin with, that those 24 men get together and skirmish, if you hadn't spoken to begin with, then it never would have come to this. Then that morning, we all would have gone back to our tents. We weren't going to start anything. Abner was the one to suggest the battle. Abner's advice, though wise, was more out of expedience than it was anything else because he'd gotten himself into this mess. Now, it takes two to fight. That's what we're going to talk about in just a little bit. Joab's just as much his fault because Abner could have said, let's let the men play, and Joab could have said, nah, but he didn't. He said, okay. So they're both, they both have their fault here. But Joab is trying to correct the idea that Abner is espousing that Joab, it's, it's kind of all his fault. Well, Joab was in no hurry to have more bloodshed among his brethren either, so he blows the trumpet, everybody goes home. That's the end of that battle. And now it was time to count the cost and to regroup. We read that in verses 29 and 30. Abner and his men walked all that night through the plain and passed over Jordan and went through all Bithran, and they came to Mahanaim. And Joab returned from following Abner, and when he had gathered all the people together, there lacked of David's servants 19 men and Adzahel. So Abner's walking back into Mahanaim. Joab is returning from following Abner, likely to someplace in Hebron. And as they count up, they find out that there's 20 men, 19 men and Azahel missing from David's men. 20 men die. Verse 31, but the servants of David had smitten of Benjamin and of Abner's men so that 303 score men died. 360 of Abner's men had died on the battlefield that day. It truly is a remarkable disparity. David's men were extremely seasoned warriors. Joab's men were, were um, and Joab was likely a, a military genius as we, as we see him continue his battles. But even with that in mind, this is an 18 men, an 18 to 1 ratio of men killed from Joab's men. One, man, one of Joab's men for every 18 of Ishbosheth's. That is amazing. I, I don't know if we can read into it too deeply, but certainly we can see the hand of God in it. That God was, was blessing Joab and his men here because that, that is a, a very high ratio for hand-to-hand -hand combat. Verse 32, the chapter ends. The scriptures tell us that they took up Azahel and buried him in the sepulcher of his father, which was in Bethlehem. And Joab and his men went all night, and they came to Hebron at break of day. So Azahel, they took Azahel, and they buried him in Bethlehem. Bethlehem would have been likely where his mom and dad lived, because his mother was Zeruiah, David's sister. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean too much because David had another sister. Uh, her name was Abigail, and she married an Ishmaelite, so she probably did not live in Bethlehem any longer. But this sister, Zeruiah, definitely lived there in Bethlehem. Now, for our application today, 
I would like us to roll back to the words between Abner and Joab when Abner had been surrounded. He warns Joab that any fighting would damage the familial relations once the king was established. Very true words. Joab responds that fighting was a bad idea to begin with. Also true words. And through these true words that both Abner and Joab state, I would like for us to consider the dangers and often the sin of infighting among the brethren. We're going to focus particularly on infighting among believers because as we look at the example that we see here, it, it, it is mentioned specifically that these men are brethren. The Benjamites and the Judites are brethren and they're fighting one another. This is a family deal. Now, it's not like um, you know, brother and sister or brother and brother woke up one day and went to different sides like sometimes would happen in the Civil War in, of the states. But this is a very real conflict between tribes, between brethren, between family, distant though they may be. And so I'd like us to focus on the relationship between us as believers and the dangers of infighting. And the first point I'd like us to consider as we kind of build an argument here is this. The cause to contend with believers will arise, and I, I uh, didn't put the last little part in this slide. It'll be in the next one, but need not be entertained. The cause to contend with believers will arise, but it need not be entertained. We begin simply. Whenever there is cause to interact with people, there will also be conflict. I've heard it said many times, life would be great if it weren't for people, right? Because where there is people, there will be conflict. The more you interact, the greater opportunity for conflict arises. You've got an immediate family, there's opportunity for conflict. You've got extended family, there's more opportunity for conflict. You've got neighbors, there's more opportunity for conflict. You have a church, there's more opportunity for conflict. You have a job, there's even more opportunity for conflict. The more you interact, the greater the opportunity there is for conflict. This is life. These are relationships. Siblings, you disagree. You will disagree. Everyone in here has disagreed. Spouses, we've all disagreed. The body of Christ will disagree. You can mark it down. So the question is not if you will contend with other believers, but rather when you will contend and how you will handle it. You will be wronged. You will wrong others. People will say things that hurt you, whether they intended to do it or not. You will say things that hurt others, whether you intended to do it or not. You might slight someone. Someone might slight you. This is the nature of relationships. Call me a cynic. Call me grumpy. But I'm pretty sure that there's a, an aspect of realism to what I'm saying. My wife, you know, she, she, uh, she likes to call me a half-glass, empty kind of person sometimes. And it's true. I can sometimes be a little bit that way. But I, I feel like I'm, I'm more of a realist than a cynic. But, but the fact of the matter is we will all have conflict. So the next question we have to ask then is, where does strife and contention come from? Where does strife and contention come from? And to answer this question, we go to the Proverbs. Proverbs 13.10 says this, only by pride cometh contention, but with the well-advised is wisdom. Only by pride cometh contention. Contention arises when pride exists, 
and only when pride exists. But pastor, what about when my cause is just? When I'm contending for truth? Well, here's the thing. Truth is truth. And that means if there's contention over truth, then someone is wrong, right? Because truth is truth is truth is truth. You can't say truth is not true for you, but is true for you, then it's not true. Truth is truth. And if truth is truth, then if I'm fighting over it, someone is wrong. If I'm contending over it, someone is wrong. And if someone is wrong, that means somebody's pride is disabling their capacity or their willingness to see or admit to truth. Maybe one, maybe both. And if the contention is over something that's not objective truth, I said truth is truth is truth is truth, which is true when it comes to truth, right? But sometimes things aren't objective truth, such as whether or not broccoli is delicious, or which candidate to vote for, or whether it's pop or soda, right? Uh, this, these, are, these are things that are not objective truths. These are opinions. And when it's an opinion issue that we're contending over, well, then where's the pride? If I, if I want to assert my opinion and you want to assert your opinion, if we start to fight over it, why would we possibly start a fight over an opinion? Because I want to have my way validated. I want you to think like me, so I'm going to fight you until you think like me. Is that not pride? I want my own way. I want to assert my truth. I might think that your way is wrong, but if it's an opinion issue, then to fight over it is to be seeking to assert my way over yours. So either way, contention comes when there's pride somewhere in the mix, right? Pride above truth. Pride above others. Pride somewhere. When there's pride, there's contention. When there's contention, there's pride. Now, follow the argument we're building here. Contention will come because we are human. This contention comes when there exists pride, a desire to have one's own way, assert one's own perspective, bend others to one's own will. But the thing with this is, pride is not becoming to believers. Pride is not appropriate for believers. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8 tells us this. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Now I've highlighted some of those words there. There's a, a lot of humble words in this passage, aren't there? There's a great number of words that reflect humility. He made himself of no reputation. The God of the universe, a man who, who thought it not robbery to be equal with God, made himself of no reputation. He humbled himself. Took upon him the form of a servant. Humbled himself. Humbled himself. That's <laughs> the next one and became obedient unto death. Obedience, humility, service, no reputation. Those are some real powerful, humble words. The God of the universe, the God who had every reason 
to assert his right, every reason to assert truth, every reason to, to expect others to conform themselves to truth, to him. He made, took upon himself the form of a servant. He made himself of no reputation. He humbled himself. He became obedient unto death. That is the example of Christ. One that we are called upon to assume. Let this mind be in you. Philippians tells us. Humility among men. And this brings us to our second point. Point number one. The cause to contend with believers will arise but need not be entertained. Number two. Fighting among believers does not become Christ. It is, it is just... It's not becoming of a Christian. The old adage says, and indeed it is quite true, and we even saw it this evening in our text, it takes two to fight. My dad used to tell me that all the time when I would argue with my sisters. Well, it's her fault. She started it. My dad would look at me and say those words that I knew were going to come, but I didn't want to come because I didn't want to admit it, but it was true. It takes two to fight. And it does take two to fight. It always takes two to fight. If pride is the root cause, and if we are clothed in humility, then there's no reason why believers ought to be in contention. If you are walking with Christ, and only by pride cometh contention, then there will be no contention. Right? Because only by pride cometh contention. Consider with me Paul's words to the church of Corinth concerning the infighting among them. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing, that there be no divisions among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it hath been declared unto me of you, my brethren, by them which are of the house of Chloe, that there are contentions among you. This is interesting, is it not? Paul doesn't tell the church that the solution to their contentions is to send someone there to, to mediate for them. He doesn't tell them that they need counseling. He, he identifies that there is contention among them, and he says, find the truth, find the consensus in the truth, and stop fighting. This statement can be made, and this expectation can be made, because he assumes that they're believers. And among believers, it, it, is, it, it ought to be that simple. You're fighting? Stop it. It ought to be that simple because contention is a pride issue. And a pride issue is a sin issue. And a sin issue is not becoming of Christ. And we are followers of Christ. So if there's pride, we're doing something wrong. We need to get it right. And then the contention should go away. Now... What this means is that in any situation among Bible believers, there is a way for contention to be avoided. Now, I say this only about believers because believers have a loyalty to the truth and they understand the spiritual, which means anytime contention should come up, there ought to be spiritual principles that can trump whatever our pride wants of us. There ought to be spiritual principles that can override it. Now, this is not so of the unbeliever, is it? The unbeliever walks to a different tune. 
Unbelievers are dead in their trespasses and sins. They, they're not objectively loyal to truth. They are loyal to their context of understanding. They're, they're, they're loyal to, to them, themselves, how they understand things. And that is rooted in pride, right? It's rooted in rebellion. And so when you, when you are dealing with unbelievers, contentions might be unavoidable. Because no matter how much you seek to avoid it, they might just come after you. They might just berate you. They might just fight you. This is the kid that's walking you know, along the road and someone comes up and just starts throwing punches at them. It's not the kid's fault that someone else came up and just started throwing punches. He, he didn't do anything. He, that can happen. But in the believing world, Contention should always be avoidable. And let's consider this within two main contexts. First, the con context of objective truth. The two contexts within which believers might fight with one another, as we've mentioned already, is either objective truth or subjective opinion. Objective truth or subjective opinion. In the context of um, objective truth, that, that are legitimate objective truths, things that, that are capital T truth. The problem is that one party or both parties have failed to identify God's opinion in the matter and is rather asserting their rights in their pride to their opinion above the truth. In this case, the obvious solution is that both men seek the scriptures, they identify the truth, and they correct each of their thinking so as to align itself with the truth. This is what Paul is telling the church to do in Corinth. Don't allow divisions among you. Be of one mind. How can he just simply say that? You're, there's fighting among us. What do you mean just be of one mind? Well, the issue is truth. And if the issue is truth, then there is a solution. Truth. So find out where you're not aligned with the truth, align with the truth, and stop fighting. Sounds so simple. Well, it really can be. What's the issue then? Pride. Only by pride cometh contention. No man stand upon his own opinion. Every man claim loyalty to the truth of God's word. Find out what that truth is. Align yourself with it. Fighting over. That's the ideal. This is God's design. Now what happens, though, when the ideal doesn't happen? Because rarely life is ideal, right? When one party has submitted himself to Christ, but the other refuses, and so the contention must remain. Now in these cases, the focus of the righteous party should not be on a fight. Should only be on asserting truth. Truth, as we often say in this church, is self-validating. Truth is self-validating. What that means is that truth stands on its own two feet. I don't have to defend truth because truth is truth. Is truth is truth. The framers of the Declaration of Independence held certain truths to be self-evident, right? We hold these truths to be self-evident. What they meant by that is that these truths stand upon their own two feet. They speak for themselves. This is not a debatable topic here. All men are created equal and are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. Among them, 
life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Self-evident, self-validating truths are those which need no defense. They only need assertion. And when people deny or reject these truths, they do so not because they don't recognize them as truth, but because the truths don't fit into their priorities, into their preconceived notions, into their agenda. So we need not fight with believers over self-evident truths. We need not contend over that which is plain to see. I don't need to argue with people over truths that are, that are obvious. I don't. They know it. I know it. What's arguing going to do? I don't need to argue with people when they know sound doctrine and I know sound doctrine, but they're arguing with me about it. It's sound doctrine. It's there. It's there for, 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 the, the, for everyone to read. I don't need to, to get into a debate with a person over whether a woman should preach. I can open up the Bible to a verse and read it. I don't need to get into a debate with a person over whether or not theft is wrong. Because I can open the Bible and read the verse, Thou shalt not steal, and know that theft is wrong. I don't have to argue with people over these things. I can state it. I can live it. I can bring up inconsistencies in other people's lifestyle when, when conformed to, to the biblical standard. But to draw it into a fight stirs up pride. And oftentimes it harms the cause rather than helps it. Have you ever known somebody that if you get into a fight with them, if you point something out that's wrong and you point it out in the wrong way, you know that if you point it out in the wrong way, it's just going to harden them in, their, in, in that wrong behavior because there's something in them that just when they get corrected, even if they know they're wrong, they just harden themselves and assert their rightness. And so you have to be careful at how you approach them because if you approach them wrongly, then they're just going to harden themselves even if they know they're wrong. And that can oftentimes be the case. If we come to, if we approach truth from a contentious attitude, we'll oftentimes just harden people in their pride. And sometimes this means that you'll just need to swallow your pride. Sometimes this means you'll even need to allow yourself to be put at a disadvantage. Well, how? Well, contentions over objective truth are not always just words, are they? What happens when a fellow believer hurts you? What happens when a fellow believer cheats you, wrongs you, takes advantage of you? These actions violate truth, violates what ought to be. I can go up to them and I can start fighting with them over truth. But we all know what truth is. What do we do when believers' actions are not just misguided, but perhaps harmful? I mean, it's got to start a fight, right? I've got I've to assert that they wronged me. I've got to let them know that they've done wrong. I've got to let the church know that they've wronged me. Do you? Consider Paul's advice to the Corinthian church. Specifically involving taking believers to court. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1. He says, Dare any of you having a matter against another go to law before the unjust and not before the saints? Do ye not know that the saints shall judge the world? If the world shall be judged by you, are ye unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Know ye not that we shall judge angels? How much more 
things that pattern to this life, excuse me, pertain to this life. If then ye have judgments of things pertaining to this life, set them to judge who are least esteemed in the church. I speak to your shame. Is it so that there is not a wise man among you? No, not one that shall be able to judge between his brethren. But brother goeth to law with brother, and that before unbelievers. Now therefore there is utterly a fault among you, because ye go to law with one another. Why do you not rather take the wrong? Why do ye not rather suffer yourselves to be defrauded? Nay, ye do wrong and defraud, and that your brethren... So Paul's first point is, in a matter of contention here, don't go to unbelievers to judge it. Go to a believer. If you've got to have a judgment here, if somebody has to stand and say, he's right, he's wrong, which does happen from time to time, at least choose someone that's a believer. At least choose someone that has the wisdom of the, word, of, of the Lord, that has the wisdom of the Word of God to, to guide the decision-making process. Don't go before an unbelieving judge and fight with another believer. Not only can they not judge, but what kind of a testimony? And Paul would go on to say this. What kind of a testimony are you, are you exhibiting? What kind of a testimony is it when believers are suing churches that they attended? And they go before these unbelieving magistrates and they try to get verdicts. What kind of a testimony is that to the world? So Paul says there's a real big problem there. Number two, the wisdom issue. There's a real big problem here because there's no wisdom. There's no wisdom in the unbelieving world. Wisdom, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If they don't fear the Lord, they can't have wisdom. If they don't have wisdom, then why are you going before them for a spiritual judgment? For a judgment among another believer? Cannot even the least esteemed in the church judge better who's right and who's wrong? Who needs what? But then he takes it one step farther. He says, hey, why not just take the wrong? Why not just suffer yourself to be defrauded? Why not? They wronged me. Okay. They wronged me. They know, that, that they know what the scriptures say. They know the truth. I know the truth. Why not rather just suffer myself to be defrauded? To take the wrong. I remember when I was in college, I was a, a residence assistant in a leadership position. Had a young man just storm into my room, piping hot, angry, angry. His roommate had taken a bottle of his shampoo and done something with it for a prank. Taking his bottle of shampoo and, and it was everywhere and whatever and prank and now he doesn't have any shampoo left. What are we going to do about that? No shampoo. You know, there's 250 guys in this building. Shampoo is the issue. So I went into my cabinet and I pulled out a new bottle of shampoo that I had for myself, for my next bottle. I gave it to him. I said, there you go. Does that work? He said, okay. Hey, he left. He got his bottle of shampoo. He was content. Didn't have to fight about it. Didn't have to. It was a bottle of shampoo. Things like that have split churches. Color of carpet has split churches. Why not rather take the wrong? Why not rather suffer yourself to be defrauded? Paul says, than to have contention among the brethren, husband or wife. Why not rather suffer yourself to just be defrauded? So, so he didn't empty the trash that day. So, so th there's, there's some dishes by the sink. 
Why not rather suffer yourself to be defrauded than turn it into a fight? Why not rather take the wrong when he said, she said, he did, she did, than bring it to a fight? Because contention does not become Christ. Paul says instead you wrong. You wrong your brethren. You don't just not take the wrong. You, you turn around and you defraud and you wrong. Now we're exchanging blows. Where does it end? Where does it end in a family, in a marriage, in a church? Can we just hope that every time it somehow fizzles out and it doesn't end the way it could end? Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 38 to 40, Ye have heard that it hath been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you, that ye resist not evil. But whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if a man will sue thee at law and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. It's not pretty. It's not fun. But when we take the wrong, when we defer the wrongs done against us, truth is validated and then we can simply trust God to vindicate. Trust God to handle the conscience of the other person because we're all believers here. This is among believers, remember. The second context in which contention can arise is with the subjective, right? Those things that are not objective truth. Not the truth is truth is truth is truth, but the broccoli is delicious. Maybe yes, maybe no. Let's fight. These contentions can be just as sharp, can't they? But, but they're less reasonable. People divided, as I mentioned before, over various things. A candidate of choice, the color of carpet, a subjective use of money, ideological differences. And in this case, the solution is simple. Someone needs to be humble enough to simply allow the other person to say their piece and defer to them. We call it being the bigger man being the first to walk away. Don't be so caught up in having your own way that you're willing to fight over it. Let it go and move on. If the problem persists, talk to that person. If they won't relent, learn to yield. I was talking to a man a while back. He was asking for my opinion. He was really struggling. He said, he said I'm really having a spiritual issue. He owned a house and he said, people are walking through my yard and I can't stand it. So I put up little fences and things and put up signs and they're just ignoring them. And he said, it's causing resentment in my heart and it's really causing a spiritual problem. What should I do, pastor? I looked at him and I said, pave a path through your yard. He didn't like that answer. He said, well, I'm not going to do that. I said, look, if it's causing you a spiritual problem, and you can't stop them from doing it. Pave a path through your yard so they don't mess up your grass. Then they're not messing up your grass and you don't have a problem with God. Is the grass such a big deal that you're willing to allow it to be a problem between you and God? That you're willing to have resentment in your heart towards someone else because of grass? Because of a front yard? Right? I mean, is it that big of a deal that we will have a fight? That, that even if that person doesn't know that they're doing something wrong, that I will bear resentment in my heart 
that I will be wrong with God over something like that? The humble man is ready to yield. The humble man is willing to maintain peace. And that's because fighting among, among believers does not become Christ. So the cause to contend with believers will arise but need not be entertained. Number two, fighting among believers does not become Christ. Number three, fighting among believers will always leave damage behind. This is our final point. You cannot have contention without damage. Abner and Joab, their men fought. There was damage. Not only were 380 men killed on that day, but as Abner rightly said, this will cause bitterness among our families. Often the cost of contention cannot be measured tangibly. It's not just dollars and cents. The emotional and spiritual damage that contention brings can be, in a word, irreparable. Paul warned the church of Galatia in Galatians chapter 5, verses 13 to 15. Brethren, ye have been called unto liberty, only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And then he warns, But if ye bite and devour one another, take heed that ye be not consumed one another. If you bite, if you devour, you are not far away from consuming one another. If you allow the skirmish between brethren, don't be surprised when that skirmish turns into a battle and when that battle brings death and destruction and bitterness. And the bitterness of that day, we will consider more next week when Abner and Joab meet again. The battle didn't actually end on the battlefield that day. A bitterness between men arose on that day. The casualties of contention. Parents, when you fight, you're harming each other. You're harming the testimony of Christ but make no mistake, you're harming your children. You might one day find that your children were not just spiritually bruised from some of those arguments. They may be spiritually scarred. You might one day find out that they died spiritually one of those times that you fought. That they gave up everything you claimed to believe on one of those days that you fought. Because they said, if this is what believers do, then I don't see how it's any different. The same can be said of churches. How many people have been turned off to church by the emotional and spiritual damage caused by infighting among believers? How much larger will the population of hell be on the day of judgment on the basis of the biting and devouring of believers one with another? On the contrary, what does God exhort? Romans chapter 12, verses 17 and 18. Recompense to no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, with every ounce of strength you have, live peaceably with all men. If at all possible, husband and wife, live peaceably. What's it going to take to live peaceably? Do it. But, but, but he... 
do it. But she, do it. But I'll do it. My disadvantage, do it. I do all the work, do it. Nothing in return, do it. Among believers, it's possible. And when it isn't, someone's not aligned with truth. Galatians 6.10, As we have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. Especially us. Do good. It's your privilege and responsibility as a believer, not simply to avoid conflict, but to proactively do good to those that are of the household of faith. Foster peace. Love peace. Encourage peace. Fight for peace. You want to fight? Fight for peace. Fight for it with all your might. Fight for it with every ounce of your strength. Something's wrong? Fight for peace. One more passage as we close. Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 to 14. Paul writing again, he says, Put on therefore as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another, and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And above all these things, put on charity, love, which is the bond of perfectness. We have established the concept of forgiveness many times here at Legacy Baptist Church. Forgiveness has nothing to do with a person asking for it, has nothing to do with a person deserving it. Forgiveness is a spiritual exercise a spiritual decision between you and God that directly impacts your relationship with others. You choose to forgive others before God, whether they ask for it, whether they deserve it. It makes you right with God. It makes you right with them, whether they're right with you or not. Christ forgave you. So can you not do the same? Cannot mercy and kindness and humility and meekness and long-suffering and forbearing, and forgiveness, and love overshadow, literally bind all of our interaction. Now these actions, this list, it's quite a list, isn't it? That list is not the best way for you to feel good about yourself. <laughs> this list is not the best way for you to get your way. If that's what you're looking for, you're going to have some issues because that's pride. This list is not the best way to prove that you're right and others are wrong. This list is not the best way to validate yourself. But this list is, without question, the very best way to validate truth. And the very best way to reflect the character of Christ in your life. And as believers, what that means is that we should do it. So let's do it and let's pray.